Listen up, guys, because I've got a new show to add to your listening roster. Ever wish your friends were as into true crime as you are? Well, look no further because Stephanie and Olivia from the popular True Crime Society social media accounts are ready to tap in as your true crime besties to guide you through the latest cases taking the internet by storm. The True Crime Society podcast covers everything true crime, from missing people and cold cases to the latest breaking news. Hosts Olivia and Stephanie bonded over their interest in true crime and created an online community of almost 200,000 crime enthusiasts who demanded a podcast. And because one is from Sydney and the other is from New York, you get a unique global perspective that can sometimes be missing from other shows. It's like chatting with your friends about all the true crime topics that you're desperate to talk about with well-researched episodes with the perfect balance between banter and facts. Sound like something you'd like to hear? Be sure to search for and subscribe to the True Crime Society podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your favorite podcast app is. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Sometimes it takes years to officially solve a case, even if the answer seems simple and straightforward. On March 17, 2010, a man was court-martialed for a crime he committed against a family almost 25 years prior. A crime that seemed pretty cut and dry when it first came to light. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Gary Eastburn, a captain in the United States Air Force, met Catherine Katie Eastburn during the 1970s. They married in 1975, and by 1985, the couple had welcomed three beautiful children into their family. Five-year-old Kara, three-year-old Aaron, and 22-month-old Jana. Prior to Jana's birth, the family of four relocated to Pope Air Force Base, where Gary was serving as the chief of air traffic control, and, like most military personnel, was away from home in May of 1985, completing some training back in Montgomery, Alabama, while his family remained 500 miles away in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Back at home, Katie placed an ad in the local newspaper with the necessary information to rehome the family's English setter. The Eastburns were planning a big move to England so Gary could begin a liaison job with the Royal Air Force, and unfortunately, their dog Dixie could not make the trip with them. On May 7, 1985, Katie opened up the front door and let in 27-year-old U.S. Army Sergeant Timothy Hennis, the man who hopefully would be taking Dixie home with him. Timothy, who grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, and joined the U.S. Army in 1980, had just welcomed a newborn baby girl into his family, and, together with his wife Angela, had decided to respond to the Eastburn's ad about Dixie. After speaking with Katie for a bit, Timothy, a parachute rigger out of Fort Bragg, decided to take home the dog. All seemed perfectly fine, until, days later, the police were called to check in on the Eastburn family. On May 11, 1985, four days after Dixie was taken off to her new home, Gary made his routine Saturday morning phone call to his wife that went unanswered. While waiting for her to call back, Bob Seafelt, the Eastburn's neighbor, noticed that the newspapers were piling up on their front porch as if they were out of town, a theory that was tossed out when he noticed their car was still sitting in the driveway. 
Feeling as though he needed to check up on the wife and children, Bob went over to the house and rang the front doorbell. It too went unanswered, but he swore he could hear the sounds of Jana, the youngest Eastburn, screaming in the background. Something was clearly wrong and Bob told his wife to call the police. Upon entering the home, Bob still waiting outside, the police found the remains of Katie, Kara, and Aaron with the sounds of Jana still screaming in the background. Rushing to the young girl, the officer found that she was just hours away from death, was completely dehydrated, starving, and covered in dirt and feces. She was passed out through the window to Bob as the search continued. Katie, who was lying naked from the waist down, had been raped, semen still found inside of her body, and stabbed 15 times. Five-year-old Kara had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, found curled up under a Star Wars blanket, and Aaron was found bludgeoned in the chest and back. All three had their throats cut. Desperate to know what happened, the police asked 22-month-old Jana what she had seen. She told the child psychologist to hide because the, quote, bad men were coming, leading officials to believe that her sisters, in a final act of bravery, told her to stay hidden just before losing their lives, that they are the reason she survived the ordeal. While forensics studied the scene, collecting what they could, Gary Eastburn was called by Detective Jack Watts, who told him to come home as there had been a death in his family. Upon finding out that his family had been brutally slain, Gary gave detectives every piece of information he had, including the part about rehoming Dixie before their move to England. Unfortunately, because his wife was handling the situation, he had no information on the dog's new owner. Detective Jack Watts and his partner Robert Biddle were placed in charge of the investigation and, while combing the evidence in the house, found not only signs that the killer, or killers, attempted to clean up the scene, but fingerprints and stray pieces of hair were found from the suspect. They also found out that a number of things were missing from the home, like an envelope of cash and Katie's ATM card. Things were looking good with this investigation, and they began looking even better when a man named Patrick Cohn came forward of his own accord and said that he saw a man wearing a members-only jacket lurking around the area at 3.30 a.m. on May 10th. He said he saw the white male, tall, blonde, with a mustache and wearing a knitted cap, walking away from the Eastburn's house carrying a large trash bag. The man looked at Patrick and said, leaving a little early this morning, before walking towards his white Chevette and driving off. With the help of a sketch artist, Patrick created a sketch of the unknown man, and investigators continued to question anyone who knew the Eastburn family. People like their babysitter, who said that Katie thought she had a stalker and that the family had been getting crank calls for about a month prior to the murder. Calls that, though seemingly harmless at the time, did contain sexually explicit rants geared towards Katie. Six days after the murder, Timothy and Angela Hennis were watching the news when a familiar house popped up on their screen. To their horror, the couple realized that the sweet family they received Dixie from had been brutally murdered, and that the police were looking for a man driving a white Chevette seen near the scene of the crime, the same car that was sitting in the Hennis' driveway. Realizing how this must look, Timothy drove over to the police station to speak with Detective Watts and Biddle. When Jack Watts walked into the room, he was immediately struck by the similarities between Timothy Hennis and the sketch Patrick Cohn helped them to create. Diving into their investigation, Timothy openly admitted to being at the Eastburn house on May 7th. 
But other than a phone call to the family on March 9th to tell them how Dixie was settling in, he said that neither he nor his wife had any other contact with Katie or her family. When asked where he was on May 9th, with forensics placing the time of death somewhere between late on the 9th and early on the 10th, Timothy said he had driven his wife and daughter to his in-laws' home that night and, after refueling his car, returned home. He also willingly gave investigators samples of his blood, saliva, and hair to compare to what was left at the scene, as well as finger and palm prints. Despite how helpful he seemed, Timothy Hennis was named as a prime suspect due to his likeness to the sketch. And after Patrick Cohn identified him in a lineup, he was arrested. In addition to Patrick's sketch, investigators who knew Katie's stolen ATM card was used in two separate transactions totaling $300 sought to link Timothy to the crime via being late on his monthly rent payment, hence the stolen ATM card, and his prior convictions for writing bad checks. There was also a woman who had visited the ATM shortly after the second transaction, who witnessed a blonde man matching Timothy's description at the bank. They also found out that Timothy not only owned a members-only jacket, but that he had brought it to a dry cleaner on May 10th, with neighbors claiming to see him burning some items in a barrel on the morning of May 11th. All of this, coupled with the fact that his former girlfriend, who told police he made an impromptu visit to her home, challenged the alibi he gave investigators, was enough to convince police that he was the man responsible for the Eastburn murders. In the summer of 1986, Timothy Hennis was brought to trial and represented by lawyers to initiate a romantic relationship with Katie. She turned him down and, furious, he took it out on the married mother and her children. After being shown a handful of extremely graphic photos and 10 hours of deliberation, a jury found Timothy Hennis guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of rape. On July 8, 1986, he was sentenced to death for his crimes and was transferred to the Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. However, this is not where Timothy's story ends. It was at Central Prison where he got an anonymous letter, postmarked for the day of his sentencing, that stated the following. Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. The letter was also sent to the sheriff's office. With Timothy asserting his innocence and the strange letter casting doubt in the minds of some, Gerald Beaver successfully appealed Timothy's conviction at the North Carolina Supreme Court on the grounds that the graphic crime scene photos and videos shown by the prosecution unduly influenced the jury against his client. The judges ruled in his favor and Timothy was granted a new trial making him the first person on death row in North Carolina to do so. With his same lawyers in tow, Timothy Hennis was brought back into the courtroom where a new prosecution attempted to argue the case against him. This time, his lawyers sought to challenge the prosecution's witnesses and their evidence, focusing on Patrick Cohn specifically and his criminal record. They also attacked his testimony about the weather the night of the murder, in which he described it as fair. They said that, according to a meteorologist and helicopter pilot, the weather was actually fairly overcast, leading the jury to believe that Patrick's testimony might not be as ironclad as the prosecution wanted them to believe. They also brought up the female witness from the ATM and said that, though she now claims she saw Timothy at the bank that day, she had initially told investigators that she did not see him, 
and only changed her story on the eve of the trial. In addition to poking holes in every witness the prosecution had, Beaver and Richardson presented two new witnesses. One was a newspaper delivery woman who claimed that she saw a light-haired man driving a light-colored van on the morning of March 11th. And the other was a local teenager who said he was jogging near the Eastburn home on the night of the murder and, in addition to saying he wore a similar outfit to the one described by the witnesses, bore some similarities to Timothy Hennis. The defense claimed that the footprints, blood, and hair samples did not match Timothy nor the victims, and that the member's only jacket had been tested and contained no traces of blood. Given what they were presenting to the courts, it almost seemed impossible that Timothy was convicted in the first place. After three weeks of trial and two days of deliberation, a jury found Timothy Hennis not guilty of all counts and was released from prison. In the aftermath of his second trial, Gary and Janet Eastburn relocated to North London, where, six years after his family's murder, Gary met and married the woman who would become Janet's stepmother. He retired from the Air Force after several years and finally returned to the U.S. to settle down in Washington. Timothy, in the meantime, re-enlisted in the U.S. Army, was promoted to staff sergeant, went off to Iraq during Operation Desert Storm, and received several awards and accolades for his service. He had another child and, in 1998, moved to Fort Lewis, Washington with family, where he served as his son's scoutmaster before retiring from the military as a master sergeant in 2004. While both families were trying their best to move on, Gary from the loss of his wife and daughters and Timothy from being wrongfully convicted, in May of 2005, Captain Larry Trotter of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office attended a detective seminar on advanced criminal intelligence techniques, which included the familiar case study on the Eastburn murders. While speaking with a journalist, Scott Wisnat, who covered the trials, Larry learned that detectives extracted the semen from Katie's body, but since it was the mid-1980s and DNA testing was still in its infancy, the sample had yet to be tested. Things were different now, and with the Eastburn murders still a cold case, Larry Trotter had the semen sent over to the State Bureau of Investigation's crime lab where... In June of 2006, a test determined that the sample was 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to come from one man, Timothy Hennis. The results were then shared with the local DA and Timothy's old lawyer, Robert Biddle, who then contacted Gary Eastburn. The only problem with this news was that Timothy Hennis, despite clearly being guilty, could not be retried due to double jeopardy clause. However, because of the United States Constitution's dual sovereignty doctrine, which allows a defendant tried and acquitted in a state court to be retried on the federal level, and because the Uniform Code of Military Justice permits military personnel who have been tried in civilian court to be court-martialed, Timothy Hennis was, on September 26, 2006, called out of retirement and returned to Fort Bragg. On March 17, 2010, after a number of appeals, Timothy Hennis, now active duty military, was court-martialed in a trial that lasted three weeks. With military personnel now serving as both lawyers and jury members, the defense attempted to, once again, prove that the other samples taken from the scene did not match Timothy Hennis, claiming that the semen was deposited during a consensual sexual encounter with Katie just before the murder. The jury did not agree, and on April 3, 2010, 
They unanimously found him guilty after just three hours of deliberation. On April 15, 2010, the jury recommended that he be sentenced to death. He was demoted to the grade of Private E1, stripped of all pay and allowances, and dishonorably discharged from the Army. In January of 2011, Timothy's attorneys called for another trial on the grounds that the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation's lab worker, Brenda Bissett Dew, who testified at his trial, was under investigation for writing misleading reports in other cases that she was working on. The prosecutor questioned their motives, as, according to their argument in court, the semen found on Katie's body came from a consensual sexual encounter, and the request was denied. A few months later, Timothy attempted to appeal his second conviction on the grounds that the U.S. Army did not have the jurisdiction to try him for the murders. The petition was eventually dismissed. Timothy continues to try and appeal his case in any way possible, some more complicated than others, all of which, as of now, have been denied. He remains behind bars to this day. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on March 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.